I deliberated on whether uh, I would uh, cover Psalm 78. Uh, it's, uh, it's a long psalm, right? Uh, 72 verses long. It's the longest of what they call the historical psalms. But it definitely intersects with the ministry of Christ, which is what my focus is going to be on. And then we're going to talk about just the, the greater scheme uh, of the, the psalm and what the, what the point is in relationship to the idea of a parable. Well, uh, in Psalm 78, there's really one direct application to the Messiah's ministry as, as seen in Matthew 13.35, uh, where... Uh, it references Jesus' teaching in parables as a fulfillment of Psalm 78, 2. Uh, in John uh, 6, 31, uh, Jesus' critics quote from this psalm as well, uh, verse 24. Uh, he gave them bread from heaven in an effort to try to persuade Jesus to continually, uh, to uh, continue, that is, to miraculously provide bread. So we have these two verses uh, in Psalm 78 that intersect with the, the Messiah's ministry. As I say, it's uh, the longest of the historical psalms, and it has some deep spiritual lessons for us that we can learn from Israel's history. I think from God's perspective, the main idea here of this psalm is a really critical one in terms of when you look to try to understand life and history and what God's doing in the world, this psalm has a, a major place here. I'm not going to go through the whole of the psalm here. You can see I broke it down, Israel's rebellion, God's faithfulness, and then uh, how the, the psalm's kind of broken down here as we work our way through. And we will touch on, uh, you know, I'll, I'll read through the psalm and we'll touch on a few things, but I especially want to zero in on verse 2. So let's get started. Uh, verses 1 through 4, learning from the past, a contemplation of Asaph. Asaph was a singer, a musician. Uh, in the time of David and Solomon, he was also a prophet uh, in his musical compositions. Begins, verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. So he's telling us the nature of what this psalm is going to be about. It's a parable. It's dark sayings. The word parable is often translated proverb. In fact, the book of Proverbs is named after this very word. Um, it can be translated uh, proverb, and, and it is often. Uh, a parable is the idea of comparison. That's If you were to really boil it down, it's that idea of comparison. It illustrates by way of comparison. Dark sayings is the idea of a riddle or a puzzle that can only be known by divine revelation. Uh, you know, God likes to reveal his truth in puzzle form uh, that makes us think and, and a little bit work for it. Uh, of course, we can never figure it out on our own. Uh, we need his help. But it's interesting how Proverbs begins, you know, right at the very beginning, to understand a proverb and an enigma, something that's obscure. The words of the wise and their riddles. Isn't that interesting? The words of the wise and their riddles. And so the book of Proverbs is to try to help us understand these things. And then as we go into chapter 2 in Proverbs, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, 
Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Isn't it interesting? All these verses that build up to verse 5. Then you will understand. Well, what? What? If you incline your ear, apply your heart, cry out for discernment, seek her as silver, search for her as hidden treasures. If there's some diligence, you know, it's kind of like you need to dig for this a little bit. You say, well, you know, just a surface reading, that's all you need. Well, it doesn't look like it to me. Uh, it looks to me like uh, God's expecting you to dig a little bit. Uh, and as you do, uh, you will find gold there, just like you're digging for, for precious metals. And boy, my life is a testament to that. I mean, this is what I'm doing all the time. I'm, I'm digging. I'm just digging uh, little by little, little by little, day in and day out. And you are too, as, as you study the scriptures. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's also the way of God to reveal a matter to those who diligently seek out his truth, as we have noted. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, and there are secret things. Nobody has them figured out. The secret things, they belong to, to God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. We are blessed to receive of the revelation of God, so much so that in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, it says that now, by His Spirit, God reveals to us the secret things that can otherwise not be known. James 1 says that God freely gives wisdom to those who ask in faith. Well, if we have a right heart and truly seek out God's truth in His Word, He will show it to us. And there are deep lessons from Israel's history for us that we can glean from Psalm 78. On the surface, you might miss a lot of these things, but as you study it and you begin to dig into it, there's a lot of connections here. Matthew 13.35 quotes this verse, verse 2 here, as being a fulfillment of prophecy in the ministry of Christ when he began to teach in parables. Uh, note in that chapter, verses 34, 35. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. So at this point, his ministry becomes in parables. And there's a contextual reason for that as they have just rejected the plain, straight message and ministry of Christ. Now he's speaking in parables. Verse 35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, uh, Matthew 13.35 is therefore a paraphrase uh, of Psalm 78.2. NIV Study Bible says, Matthew apparently perceived in this psalm a prophetic voice anticipating that of the great prophet Jesus. Indeed, that's true. And in that same chapter, uh, Jesus said this to his disciples... Okay. You help me? Thank you. Uh, and the disciples came to him. Why do you speak to them in parables? And then he said, he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So there was a specific reason that there was some hidden things here in relationship to those that were rejecting. But for the people of God... Uh, for his disciples, it had been given, he says, to know. 
The main theme of Psalm 78 depicts God's faithfulness despite Israel's pattern of disobedience. And we will see this. The pattern of history recalled in Psalm 78 without proper interpretation might simply be seen as one long pattern of disobedience. But the writer sees God behind it all and sees his unwavering faithfulness as he shepherds Israel to a determined end. Uh, You see sovereignty all through this particular psalm. The enlightened mind will be able to see this uh, as we study it together. We see the hand of God in relationship to his chosen people, Israel. Well, Jesus applied uh, his parabolic teaching ministry to new truth. Uh, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. There were some, some new kingdom insights being revealed through the parables that he was teaching. And uh, we noted when we went through Matthew 13, several things there. Uh, true kingdom citizens are those who receive the word with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with perseverance versus the, those who uh, make an outward profession, even initially receive it with joy, but then immediately fall away and, and those kind of things. We noted the inauguration of the kingdom has been delayed, which is a major theme in Matthew 13 in the parables. And finally, during the time of delay, God is still building a kingdom people. But there are also many false professors, and God will sort it all out at the end. Well, Asaph, via a history lesson now, is showing God's sovereign and faithful ways in relation to his people Israel. Someone has uh, summed up Psalm 78 as, quote, depicting God's ways in grace and Israel's ways in perverseness. Well, that's a pretty good summary. One of the purposes of the psalm is to help us learn from Israel's mistakes. You know, you can learn from your own mistakes. You can also learn from the mistakes of others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, now these things became our examples. He's quoting out of the book of Numbers uh, in the context there and uh, the, the sin that they fell into in various ways. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So these things are an example to us. Verse 11, now all these things happen to them as examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He continues, verse 3, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. You know, God's design is that his truth be passed on from one generation to the next. He doesn't give all new truth in every generation. He doesn't say, well, you know, he gave it to the last generation. He'll be giving a whole new, uh, uh, a whole new stack of information to this new generation. And then the next generation, they'll get, they'll get another new book. No, no, no. It's not, it doesn't work that way with God. No. He gives his truth, and then he expects us to communicate to our children, and then they to their children, and they to their children. What has been known is seeing and understanding the sovereign hand of God as he moves in and through history. Ours is a historical faith, and a key central component of that historical faith is Israel. And how God has worked in relationship to Israel, which is the point here of this psalm. Verses 5 through 8, responsible to reach each generation. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, 
So God revealed his truth, but then he expected them to make it known to their children. That the generation to come might know them. How are they going to know it if we don't, if we don't pass it along? The children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. That they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Verse 8, and not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Well, in reviewing Israel's history, Asaph begins with God giving the law, and then he says that the fathers were a stubborn and rebellious generation that did not set their heart aright. They were accountable for the truth given to them by God, but they had a heart problem. The psalm basically charts Israel's course from Moses to David. Right from the start, it was rebellion that really characterized them as a people. You know, of all the people, I mean, all people are depraved. All people go back to, you know, a chip off the old block of Adam. You know, we're all, we're all born with that, that sin nature. But, uh, boy, I'll tell you, the, they are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. Israel has been. I mean, at every step of the way. Pretty much. Verses 9 through 11, the rebellion of Ephraim. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. Strong language. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forgot his works and his wonders that he had shown them. Ephraim was uh, one of the larger tribes in Israel. And sometimes God calls the whole of Israel by the name Ephraim. We don't know exactly what the occasion in view here is, but clearly betrayal of her covenant relationship with God is in view. Verses 12 through 16. God's work in the Exodus. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zon. The field of Zon is thought to be a place where Moses performed miracles before Pharaoh to persuade him to let God's people go. The city of Zon is also mentioned in Isaiah 19, Isaiah 30, and Ezekiel 30. Verse 13, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. Wow, this was often, that'd be a great occasion. You think, boy, if I could be transported back and go through an experience they had back there, uh, which experience would I choose? I tell you, going through the Red Sea, uh, you can't, I don't know what that was like. You know, got this, you know, water doesn't normally just stand up like that. And over here. And we're walking through this, and wow, we've got a channel through here. <laughs> what an amazing experience. John MacArthur says, The parting of the Red Sea at the beginning of the Exodus, which allowed Israel to escape from the Egyptian armies, was always considered by the Old Testament saints to be the most spectacular miracle of their history. It was definitely a biggie. Verse 14, In the daytime also he led them with a cloud, and at night with a light of fire. Boy, you talk about the presence of God in a very visible and real way, day in and day out. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Verses 17 through 20. This was rebellion to God's works. This section here provides an overview of Israel's rebellion against God in the desert during their 40 years of wilderness wanderings. I mean, he's leading them. You know, they got the cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. I mean, obvious uh, God's presence. Their shoes didn't wear out during this time. All of this stuff. But verse 17 says, But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness. 
And they tested God in their heart. Again, heart problem. By asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock. So the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? They're very self-oriented, not satisfied with God's provision. Instead, wanting the finer foods the world has to offer, such as they had back in Egypt. We remember the leeks and all this stuff back in Egypt. And so they tested God, which is to say, in sinful doubt, they challenged his ability to take care of them in the wilderness. And this was very offensive to God. Is God able? It's a serious matter to really even ask the question. Is God able to take care of us? Sometimes we act like he's not. That's just really a serious thing. And they were doing this in their heart. They tested God in their hearts. Verses 21 through 25, God's anger with Israel's sin. Therefore, the Lord heard this and was furious. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel because they did not believe in God. There's their problem. And did not trust in his salvation. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of bre- the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. I mean, he definitely provided. Manna for them, day in and day out. Israel's great sins were ingratitude, testing God and doubting his power and his care. And this made God furious. God miraculously provided manna, angels' food, And yet they did not appreciate it. Verses 26 through 31, God's what I call God's foul judgment. Uh, You get it, right? 26, verse 26, he caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust. I mean, it started raining quail. Feathered uh, fowl like the sand of the seas. Look at all this meat coming in, incoming. He let them fall in the midst of the camp all around their dwelling. So they ate and they were filled for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Well, yeah, God gave them what they wanted. And then judge them in the midst of their self-indulgence. We read about this in Numbers chapter 11. There we go. Uh, now a wind went out from the Lord and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on the other side all around the camp and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, all the next day, gathered the quail... You gathered, least gathered 10 homers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. I mean, they are really getting into this. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Charles Spurgeon says the Lord showed them that he could provide. He could provide flesh for his people, even enough to spare. That's an understatement. He also showed them that when lust wins its desire... It is disappointed. Yeah. Verses 32 through 39, God's mercy, Israel's sin. In spite of this, they still sinned. 
and did not believe in his wondrous works. David Gazik says, in some ways, this is the most tragic line of the psalm. Despite all the blessings and the strongest of corrections, they still sinned. Israel didn't learn either from God's goodness or from his wrath. Verse 33 continues, Therefore their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. And they lied to him with their tongue. They're lying to God. For their heart, heart problem, Their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. They played games with God, pretending allegiance to him. But it was not genuine. Their heart was not true and faithful. Always comes back to the heart issue. Verse 38, but he being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. Yes, many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. We see here great mercy from God. Many a time he turned his anger away. He remembered how fragile they were and and he had mercy on them. Verses 40 through 55, God's faithfulness, Israel's provocation. William MacDonald says the psalmist is going to go over the whole sorry story again. If we as readers grow weary of the repetition, think how irritating it was to the Lord, which I think is part of the point here, right? I mean, we do kind of weary of this stuff as we're wading through it and say, can we get to the end already? You may be saying that quietly in your heart right now. (laughs) Verses 40 through 55 are essentially a summary review of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, reviewing where God had brought them from and where he brought them to. Verse 40, how often they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Yes, again and again they tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. Very short memories people have sometimes. The day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zone, turned their rivers into blood and their streams that they could not drink. He's recounting the plagues that got brought against Egypt. He sent swarms of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He also gave crops to, their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He also gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to fiery lightning. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. And destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on safely, so they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. And he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents." Well, that brings us to the promised land. And uh, as we go into verses 56 through 64, we see rebellious Israel in the promised land. Verse 56, yet, yet in spite of how God had brought them all this way and what he had done for them in the whole process, 
Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places, idolatry, and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity. Think about that line. Delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. What an amazing statement. In context here, Asaph is recalling how God allowed the Philistines to have victory over Israel and capture the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of God. His very glory. We read about this in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4. And it's talking about Eli's uh, daughter-in-law. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth. For her labor pains came upon her. About the time of her death, the women who stood by her said, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband, who had, you know, they died. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Verse 62. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men. Their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Verses 65 and 66. God's triumph over Israel's enemies. Then, drumroll, then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies. He put them to a perpetual reproach. <clears throat> of course, God doesn't really sleep. What is being pictured here is the feeling that, that God has been inactive and allowed this to happen to them. And then suddenly, it was like the Lord awoke and in great power beat back the enemies. Sometimes as a matter of discipline, <clears throat> God allows his enemies to wreak havoc on his people, even violating his glory, as it were. But that ultimately is very short-lived, as God, in the end, always vindicates his name. And note, when the Gentiles oppress God's people Israel, they, in reality, are showing their enmity against God. Verse 66 here depicts his enemies, meaning God's enemies. And then to finish out the psalm, uh, 67 through 72, God's choice of Judah, Zion, and David. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he has established forever. And he also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. He brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. 
Well, God in his sovereign ways did not choose Joseph, although he personally blessed Joseph in a, in a great way. He did not choose the large tribe of Ephraim. Rather, he chose Judah and Mount Zion, where his temple would be built. And he chose David to shepherd his people. The psalm comes to a close on David's shepherding care. Now, many of the commentators bring out that David was really a prototype of the good shepherd, which is ultimately fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. Again, David Gazik says, Like many aspects of David's rule, this was fulfilled in a much greater way in David's greater son, Jesus the Messiah. David's heart mostly had integrity. The heart of Jesus was perfect in integrity. David guided Israel with great skill. Jesus leads his people with perfect skill. Well, what is the secret lesson related to the historical lesson of Israel? It's this. In spite of Israel's continual, miserable failure, God is faithfully working out his sovereign plan. I mean, you really can't derail the plan of God ultimately. He is so sovereign, perfectly sovereign. He is doing this in spite of Israel, not because of her. You say, well, look all that God has accomplished because of Israel. No, it's really in spite of Israel. You probably say the same about us, right? History teaches us that mankind learns nothing from history. But we can learn a lot from God about how he presides over history. You see, uh, Israel is central in what God is doing in history. I mean, that was true going way, way back in the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament, Israel's the centerpiece. Uh, it's been true. It's true today in terms of a nation. It is still the one chosen nation. In Israel's history, we learn about God's character and how he is very merciful and patient and ever faithful. It's because he does not change. He says in Malachi 3.6 that you are not consumed, Israel. And yet he's holy. He has a plan and no one can thwart it, not even a stiff-necked and rebellious people like Israel. History really is his story, God's story. This is ultimately a story about God's sovereign glory, and he has chosen to work it out through Israel. He tells us what's going to happen, and then he brings it to pass in relationship to Israel. I love this. Uh, you know, Mark Twain, as far as we know, was not a believer, but it was interesting what he wrote in 1899. He says, if the statistics are right, the Jews uh, constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also away out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in the world in all the ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptian and the Babylonian, the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they're gone. 
Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out. And they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew, the Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. And then he says this. What is the secret of his immortality? Oh, that's a great question. Ah, here's the enigma. There is the riddle that can only be answered in the God of the Bible. He alone is the secret to their preservation. I mean, you know, all these Gentiles in the Middle East, they want to destroy Israel. They want to drive them into the sea. It just, it just hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and it ain't never going to happen. Pardon the king's English. In David, God provided a man after his own heart to shepherd them. But there is a greater David coming who will ultimately restore and fulfill all the covenant promises that God has made to his covenant people, Israel. The riddle of history surrounding Israel is solved in the God of the Bible. He is sovereign over all and has chosen to reveal his truth in conjunction with Israel. I mean the word of God, the Messiah, and the kingdom are ultimately all delivered to the world through Israel. The enlightened find in the parable, in the, in the enigma of it all, uh, we find God's truth revealed in the history of Israel. Such is the lesson of Psalm 78. God brought them through all of this in spite of their unfaithfulness to where God had determined the end to be in David and ultimately in the greater David as we continue to read the story through. Well, let's stop there tonight since we're at the end of Psalm 78 and uh, we'll pick it up next time. Uh, next Psalm is Psalm 80, Lord willing, next Sunday night. Let's have our closing psalm.